0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Thank you all for coming. This is very uh, exciting. This is our first lecture in the NERSC Nobel Keynote Lecture Series. Uh, This is part of our 40th anniversary of, uh, of NERSC, and so we've had... Uh, f- four different NERSC users have uh, uh, actually—it's probably more than that—but at least four have uh, won Nobel prizes, and uh, they've either used NERSC as part of their research or, or after they, they had won their Nobel Prize, they they ended up doing uh, quite a bit at NERSC. And so we're going to hear more about that in the next the next four weeks. Uh, we're very lucky to have John Kurian, who's uh, going to present. He's part of Martin Carplus's team. And he's a Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Berkeley in the Departments of Molecular and Cell Biology and Chemistry. He's also a faculty scientist in Berkeley Labs Physical Biosciences Division, a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator, and a member of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, professor Creon received his bachelor's in chemistry from Juniata College in Pennsylvania, followed by his Ph.D. at MIT under uh, Gregory Petsko and Martin Karplus. He did postdoctoral work for one year under Carplus at Harvard before becoming an assistant professor at Rockefeller University. So, so let's let's welcome Professor Creon and. Uh, thank you. Thank you.
0: So Thank you very much. It's an honor to give you my perspective on uh, the field of molecular dynamics, which was recognized uh, by the 2013 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. I know that Martin Karplis is sorry that he can't be here today. This talk has not been pre-screened by him, but I got an email from him early this morning, saying that he looks forward to watching the video. So if doesn't adhere, uh, if the talk doesn't adhere to his high standards, I'm sure I will hear from him. <laughs> it was a, a, a really great pleasure to have been invited by Martin Karplis to witness is receiving the Nobel Prize. And so here he is in the concert hall in Stockholm receiving uh, the prize from the King of Sweden. And here is Randy Shackman from Berkeley down the hill uh, beaming from year to year, although that's not visible. The prize was shared uh, uh, between Karplis and two other people, Michael Levitt and Aria Warshel shown here, Michael Levitt from Stanford, and Aria Warshel from the University of Southern California. And um, I'll mention their contributions very briefly, but uh, that's not the uh, major scope of what I'm going to talk about. Uh, As a former student of Martin Karpis's, I'm going to give you my perspective on the impact of the computer simulations that he um, was one of the people instrumental in developing on biology in particular. I should also say I'm not a computational scientist. I'm an experimental structural biologist, and so what you'll be seeing is, is a view of what this field can do for our understanding of molecular machines in biology. Uh, th- there were three of us from Berkeley. Some of you may know David Chandler and Elaine Chandler here, and here we are in the gallery as the, um, as the program was about to begin. So um, the Slides that I'm going to show you are taken partially from Martin's Nobel Prize lecture in Stockholm, and partly they're going to be things I put in to explain certain things. And so what Martin says here is that, as I'm sure most of you know, the the physical laws that are required to understand molecules, and certainly all biomolecules, are completely understood. Basically, the quantum mechanics of uh, electronic systems. And um, the only difficulty is that if you write down a quantum mechanical equation for something even as small as a peptide, it's much too complicated to solve it exactly on a computer, even the fastest computers here at NERSC. And so the key uh, thing is that you need to approximate the exact equations for the energy. Uh, by applying some kind of approximation that um, captures the essence of the physics uh, but makes it simple enough to calculate uh, the energies and the motions of molecules. And so the prize actually was given for the development of what's referred to as multi-scale models for chemical systems. And the essential idea is that you need to calculate the potential energy surface on which atoms move and once you have this potential energy surface you can use the laws of motion to generate a trajectory for atoms. And so one of the key insights that occurred very early in the 60s was that although this is fundamentally a quantum mechanical problem you can treat the motion of atoms on this energy surface as a classical problem in dynamics. And um, the first uh, application of this kind of idea came from the work of Martin Karplis on a very simple uh, uh, reaction, which I learned about when I was a student, which is a hydrogen atom colliding with a hydrogen molecule to form a new covalent bond and break one so that at the end nothing changes but this is the simplest chemical reaction that's been studied and so here's this very simple chemical reaction again from Martin Karplis' Nobel lecture, here's the energy as a function of the reaction coordinate what happens is that this bond breaks during the collision and a new bond forms and in the 1960s um, I understand. I was myself born in 1960 and wasn't paying close attention to the developments in this field at that time. But it's my understanding from when I was in graduate school that there was some kind of very fast computer at Columbia University. Why at Columbia? I don't know. But people would log into this computer and do calculations from the Karpless group and they computed an energy surface such as this, and then basically ran classical trajectories of the hydrogen atom colliding with the hydrogen molecule. And you can um, see as the distance, this is a plot of the different distances involved in this reaction. This is a two-dimensional representation with energy on the on the vertical axis. Uh, I'm sorry, energy uh, contours shown here as a function of uh, positional space. And so the key idea is that doing this kind of classical trajectory analysis on a quantum mechanical surface um, agreed uh, with uh, the accuracy of the quantum mechanical calculations. And so the idea of this works for the lightest atom, hydrogen, it should also be valid for carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. And so that's the uh, key conceptual framework within which the computer simulations of proteins and nucleic acids is based. So what then happened from the 60s on into the 70s was the development of so-called empirical energy force fields, which were developed in the groups of Allinger, Lifson at the Weizmann Institute, and Sharaga at Cornell University. And atoms were represented uh, in different ways. I'll very briefly touch on this. So when you're looking at a protein, for example, there are different levels of representation. The atoms themselves or the residues, or the so-called secondary structures, which are the helices and strands that make up the the protein uh, or nucleic acid molecule. And these classical force fields uh, can also be extended to treat part of the system by quantum mechanics Uh, and part of the system by classical mechanics. I'll have no more to say about this, but the Nobel Committee very specifically recognized the contributions of Michael Levitt, Arya Warshaw, and Martin Karplis in this area to yield the so-called QMMM molecular mechanics, quantum mechanics method for analyzing uh, proteins and their energies. So here's a picture of Michael Levitt Uh, difficult to see but here he is and uh, the reason I uh, chose this slide uh, from a photograph I took when I was at this lecture is that it points out the importance of something called the consistent force field which was developed in 1968. Since it's difficult for you to see this I'll just read this out because this is historically an important paper. Consistent force field for calculations of conformations, vibrational spectra, and enthalpies of cycloalkanes and N alkane molecules. Those are, of course, very simple organic compounds. But the idea is in this paper by Schneer Lifson and Arya Warshall. Arya Warshall, pictured here. Schneer Lifson, unfortunately, passed away, I think, about 10 years ago. Um, but uh, but Schneer Lifson, uh, Uh, was one of the founding fathers of this field. So these ideas led to the development of a a very simple mathematical representation for energy as a function of position, which has really stood the test of time. And I teach this to undergraduates down the hill at Berkeley every, um, every fall. And here's Michael Levitt, um, explaining this uh, to the people in Stockholm U is the energy and it's a sum over all the covalent bonds in the molecule, sum over all the d- angles between uh, th- uh, triplets of atoms sum over torsions between covalent bonds this is the Van der Waals interaction which has this familiar shape with very um, sharp repulsion at small distances and a mild attraction at greater distances, and here's the Coulomb electrostatic potential. So this is a very simple decomposition of what the energy would be as a function of position, and the various parameters that govern uh, the details of these energy functions can be fit to quantum mechanical calculations or derived by matching vibrational spectra to measured uh, infrared and Raman spectra. So this is what we use even today to calculate the energy of a a protein or RNA molecule given the positions of all the atoms. And uh, so now this energy function, because it's analytic, uh, it's easy to take the first derivative of the energy, which gives you the force, and that led to the computation in 1977 by Andy McCammon, Bruce Galen, and Martin Karplis Of the first molecular dynamics trajectory. And without going into details, if you're unfamiliar with what molecular dynamics is, it's simply the computation of the motion of the atoms in response to the forces that they feel due to attraction and repulsions with each other. So, this first paper, which came out in Nature in 1997. Uh, showed the the motions of a small protein called bovine pancreatic trypsin inhibitor lasting for 9.2 picoseconds, 10 to the minus 12 seconds. It's just the blink of an eye, even in molecular terms. And the sort of things that they saw in this first computer simulation are shown here. So here's the structure of BPTI at one time point, and on the right-hand side is the structure of the same protein at a short time later, and you can see there are some conformational changes. Changes in uh, the structure of the protein that the computer has calculated as part of a trajectory in time of the protein. And so what Martin points out, again this is from his Nobel lecture, that this kind of Simulation of the motions of a protein is conceptually related to the trajectory analysis he had done of hydrogen colliding with hydrogen molecule. Uh, It's just scaled up to a much larger number of molecules. So Andy McCammon was uh, a graduate student. I I can't remember if he was a graduate student or postdoc with Martin. Uh, who, who carried out this first computer simulation. And so Martin quotes Andy McCammon here, that there was a sense, even at that time, of something truly historic going on, of getting these first glimpses of how an enzyme molecule, for example, might undergo internal motions that allow it to function as a biological catalyst. So this metaphor, that the computer is allowing you to glimpse at the protein as it functions was taken up by David E. Shaw, about whom I'll say more, who's built special purpose computers that are extraordinarily fast at doing molecular dynamics. And David Shaw named his supercomputer Anton after Anton van Leeuwenhoek, the Dutch microscopist who built the first microscope. So there's a sense that you see in this quote from Andy McCammon that running a computer simulation of a biological molecule is like having a very, very powerful computer that lets you see where all the atoms are moving. And so from this, here's the next advance that Martin cites in his Nobel lecture. It's from Michael Levitt. Uh, And it was a 210 picosecond simulation of the same protein, but now including water. McCammon and Karplis did not include water. The effects of water were treated implicitly. And that was in 1988. And now to come up to the present time, the computer Anton, developed by David Shaw, has run a one millisecond simulation of BPTI in water, which is coming up to the timescales that are truly biological, biologically relevant. So I know from having been a student of Martin Karplis that he cites... Um, uh, uh, Richard Feynman, whenever given the opportunity. And so what he likes to say, uh, quoting Feynman, is that everything that living things do can be understood in terms of the jigglings and wigglings of atoms. And that's the spirit in which these simulations are done. We'd like to see the jigglings and wigglings of atoms and see how they connect to the mechanism of these things. So again, to quote uh, Feynman, the atoms are eternal, and always moving. Everything comes into existence. is almost religiously metaphysical, but everything comes into existence simply because of the random movement of atoms, which, given enough time, will form and reform, constantly experimenting with different configurations of matter from which will eventually emerge everything we know. And so these computer simulations, the molecular dynamics of proteins and nucleic acids, are our first attempts at being able to grasp um, the complexity of biological molecules. A lot of Martin Karplis' attention has been focused on molecular motors. As he points out, one motor is special. It does not walk, but is responsible for the synthesis of ATP, the molecule which is the energy currency of life. In his Nobel lecture... Martin chose to speak about kinesins which are are motor proteins that walk on microtubule tracks. These are examples of different motors and uh, one of the things that can be done with these computer simulations is to consider a motor such as this this is kinesin, so the kinesin motor heads are here, there are two heads this is a polymer track inside a cell called a microtubule the structure of microtubules was determined here by Eva Nogales and Ken Downing at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Uh, and what the kinesins do, as worked out by Ron Vail at UCSF, is that they step, uh, in turn, uh, crossing each other, moving cargo, such as vesicles. That's what Randy Schekman won the Nobel Prize for, the vesicular transport of molecules. So with these computer simulations, what groups like Martin's have been able to do is to understand how the binding and hydrolysis of ATP here uh, is coupled to the power stroke which is what converts um, the conformation of this neck region uh, I- into a different conformation that causes one of these motor heads uh, to step along uh, but instead of going down and explaining to you what Martin Karplis' work on motors has, has been about that's, that's well documented I thought what I'd do is uh, show you a couple of things that my lab has done using the NERSC um, computing resources uh, some years ago and also I tell you a few things about what David Shaw has been doing in New York because uh, that is quite remarkable. In my lab, one of the systems we've been studying are uh, small signaling proteins called kinases. They're enzymes, so here's the structure of a kinase. And uh, these kinases are molecular switches that often go wrong in cancer. So for example, in chronic myelogenous leukemia or CML, Uh, this particular kinase called the Abelson Leukemia Virus Tyrosine Kinase, or ABLE for short, is mutant, so that it's no longer properly regulated and it keeps switching on when it should not switch on. So Novartis, the Swiss drug company, developed a drug called Gleevec, which was the first successfully targeted and designed cancer drug. Uh, The chemical structure of it is here, and in my lab we use x-ray crystallography using the beamline here at ALS, among other beamlines to determine the crystal structure, which is shown here. So here's Gleevec with the gray atoms bound to this tyrosine kinase, Abel. And uh, one of the things that we recognized immediately from seeing this crystal structure is that This drug, Gleevec, recognizes a specific conformation of this molecular switch. It turns out it recognizes the switch when the switch is switched off. And I'll explain that to you in just a minute. Um, This came as a surprise because we expected that the drug, which shuts down the protein that's improperly active, would be recognizing the active form. But what the crystal structure showed is that no, it's actually the inactive form that the drug recognizes. And that's because even though the drug, even though the protein is inadvertently on in cancer patients. It's a dynamic system, and the atoms are jiggling and wiggling, and even though it's on most of the time, it sometimes switches off. And when it switches off, it adopts this conformation of this loop here, this red loop, and that's what uh, the drug binds. So here's a view of um, uh, the Gleevec drug bound to the Abelson tyrosine kinase. And I just draw your attention to this uh, curly, these curlicues here which are a part of the structure which we call the activation loop that controls the activity of the kinase and we understand that in detail from crystal structures now because this is a switch it undergoes a conformational change at the heart of the enzyme which is shown here this is the on state and but the drug, Gleevec requires the protein to be in the off state we have about 500 different tyrosine kinases in our genome and in our bodies and Gleevec is quite specific for Abel and just two or three others for example, another important kinase called SARC, even though SARC is very similar in its general structure and you can see that when SARC is off, its predominant conformation is different you'll see the structure here in yellow is different from the structure here in blue and Gleevec is able to recognize that difference we do understand that even for SARC, um, it's a dynamic molecule and can sometimes adopt this conformation. It's just slower to or less to adopt the conformation on the left. And so my lab has spent a lot of tri- time trying to understand what controls the ability of these tyrosine kinases to be held in the inactive off state or the active on state. And um, so uh, we turn to computer simulations for that, and, and to give you a sense of what the kinds of Structure determined in my lab of um, the tyrosine kinase SARC uh, which is uh, very, very similar to ABL. in general. This is the catalytic unit or enzymatic unit. This is where ATP would normally bind. And here, um, ATP, there's a drug bound. So um, the way the kinase is kept in the inactive state is through the action of other parts of this practice. protein, which is not catalytically competent. In order for it to switch on, there has to be a conformational change between the on state, which is this, and the off state, which is this. This is not a computer simulation. This is just an interpolation using computer graphics between crystal structures of the off state and the on state, determined in my lab and other crystallography labs that study this. And so we were wondering, what is it about these other domains that keeps the protein in so we did about 10 or 12 years ago some molecular dynamic simulations that are pretty primitive by today's standards. For example, the time scale here is 2.5 nanoseconds. And here what we're doing is observing the jigglings and wigglings of the atoms in this SARC tyrosine kinase. And from this we discovered that, from these computer simulations, we discovered that these regulatory domains, which are called the SH3 domain and the SH2 domain, a relatively rigid clamp on the backside of the protein. In this graphic, we connect atoms, uh, central atoms in each row by a red line. If their motions are correlated. Uh, a line from here to here means that this link is correlated with this domain here in terms of dynamics. Tiny switches on, and computer simulations show us that when that linkage is released, I'm not going into the biology of what releases that linkage, but it's understood. When that linkage is released, these dynamical correlations decrease. And so from studies like this, we know that the way the protein works is that in the off state, there are a number of inner atomic latches that sort of clamp the dynamics and sort of keep the protein down, like Gulliver held down by the strings of the Lilliputians. And when the kinase is activated, it's released and can breathe and move and ATP and catalyze chemical reactions. So that's an example of a simulation that we've done, Some of which, for some of which we used uh, computer time here at NERSC. Now, as I mentioned, David E. Shaw at... Um, in New York uh, designed special purpose computers uh, to carry out these molecular dynamics simulations and by designing chips that um, just do one thing, do the computations of molecular dynamics, he moved the effective speed of these comput- computations about a thousand times beyond uh, the computers we were able to use for, for uh, linear uh, trajectories um, and so he he uh, Reported a couple of things that I think were crucially important in validating these kind of calculations because the skeptics amongst you might ask I've just shown you in that picture of Michael Levitt the very, very simplified seat-of-the-pants approximation type energy function that's used to drive these simulations. And the skeptics among you may wonder what connection there is between these simulations and reality. And so by building this very fast computer, David Shaw uh, did a couple of things that I'm going to tell you about. Actually, three things I'm going to tell you about, which were which were remarkable uh, for the insights they afforded, not just into biology, but into the fact that these simulations are approximate, but they're not as bad as we feared. And so the first thing I want to show you is a paper that he published in 2011, uh, which analyzed the folding of about a dozen proteins. And so what's done in, this, in these calculations is that each protein you may know is polymer chain. And he's studying small proteins for this calculation. And uh, the protein may have 50 amino acids linked in the polymer chain. So he takes the protein in an extended random conformation and then lets it go in water using only the physics-based energy function that I showed you earlier with the picture of Michael Levin. This is a critical thing to understand because in this computer simulation, what then happens is that the atoms respond only to the laws of physics as embodied in the very simple energy function. This is a contrast between with, with calculations done by others and very exciting developments that don't have to do with this, such as by David Baker, where you use the fact that scientists such as myself, who are X-ray crystallographers, have determined the structures of thousands and thousands of proteins. And this allows a completely different way to model proteins, which is to use knowledge-based algorithms. You know what a protein structure should look like, and you can use that information to predict what a protein of unknown structure should look like. And, and, and those kinds of methods are very, very uh, powerful, but they're not what I'm talking about. This is in... Uh, David Shaw's words, we report the results of molecular dynamic simulations time scales are 100 microseconds to 1 millisecond and they've done 12 different proteins they use a single physics based energy function the word single here means that it's the same energy function that Martin Karplus's program CHARM uses it's the same energy function that Michael Levitt showed in the picture I showed you earlier the energy function is not tuned for every protein because it's based just on fundamental physics. The results, when I saw this paper, are startling. Here is uh, the crystal structure in one color. I don't remember which, and it doesn't matter. And in red is the structure that came out of the folding simulation. And as an X-ray crystallographer, this is good enough. In fact, it's not just good enough. It's spectacular. And so this told us that these... Energy functions, grotesquely approximated though they are, are actually surprisingly good at capturing the essence of what determines at least the structure, if not the second-order parameters, such as um, the free energies and entropies of the system. So this is remarkable. Chains were held in an extended conformation, let go in the computer, and they fold into the correct structure as determined by X-ray crystallography. Now, here's another example I'm going to show you from David Shaw. Now, in this example, what's done is to take the same protein I was telling you about, the Sark tyrosine kinase, which, like the 8 tyrosine kinase, very important switch that goes wrong in cancer. Now, what's going to be done in this movie I'm going to show you is that you take the sarc tyrosine kinase, actually not you, David Shaw, takes, well, maybe NERSC can do this too, you take the Sark in a box of water in the and you take a drug molecule. You think. Now, again, there are very powerful methods of using knowledge-based computation. You know how small molecules interact with proteins. And so there are methods that use that information to guess how the drug binds to the protein. That's not what's done here. What's done here is to take the protein and the drug, then use the laws of physics as embodied in the simple energy function, and then. Water molecules and everything is jiggling and wiggling. See what happens. Again, the result is eye popping. So here is the SARC tyrosine kinase. here Here is the drug molecule. It just happens to be here. It's randomly placed. The water molecules that surround this protein are not shown. And in this simulation published in JAX in 2011, here goes the drug. It's wandering around, not very happy goes there, back here, and then boom, there it is. That's where a crystal structure that my lab determined found the drug. So this is again, um, I think, a very exciting result. So in this little uh, pan to to the work from David Shaw's group built on the pioneering work of of the three who who won the Nobel Prize in 2013, I'm going to show you one last example, which I find uh, really exciting, and opening up a vision for how we and others can use molecular dynamics for insight into biology. So we all know that nerves uh, conduct signals through electrical impulses called action potentials. And as I teach my students down the hill, This is a really remarkable engineering uh, principle that nature has come up with over billions of years of evolution. What's remarkable about it from an engineering point of view is that if you have a voltage spike here at the head of the axon, so this is showing your time on the x-axis and voltage on the y-axis, the voltage measured from inside the neuron versus outside. If there's a little blip in the voltage and you measure it here, this neuron could be going from the head of an elephant to its toe, and if you measure the later at the end of the neuron, the flip is reproduced without attenuation. This is, to me, one of the most remarkable molecular engineering systems in biology that I've encountered. So what underlies the transmission of action potentials with such high fidelity are the opening and closings of numerous voltage-gated ion channels. And so uh, Hodgkin and Huxley won the Nobel Prize for working out this principle. Rod McKinnon won the Nobel Prize some years ago for working out the structural principles of potassium uh, channels, uh, including voltage-gated potassium channels. And so this is a representation of the cell membrane. So in yellow is the hydrophobic core of the membrane. Outside, the membrane is above. Inside, the membrane is below. So here would be inside the axon. That is the tube that conducts the action potential. And here it's outside. And so there's this protein here which forms a tetramer, as McKinnon showed us. And uh, in the middle is a channel through which potassium ions are conducted. There are four subunits, and one of them is shown here schematically. And there's a voltage sensor here, which will actually respond to an action potential by opening the channel. And so then uh, what really happens is a game of dominoes, where one channel opens, changes the voltage, causes the next channel to open, changes the voltage, and that's how the action potential is transmitted. So this is the structure of the core. So the key to understanding the action potential generation, so here's the action potential, is the movement in the membrane of this voltage sensor. We start here, where the the channel is closed. The voltage inside the cell is negative with respect to the outside. So it's negative here, positive here. Then as an action potential arrives, the... um, inside of the cell becomes more positive, and this causes this voltage sensor to move. And it moves because there are arginine residues positively charged. So it basically bears a number of positive charges, which are shown here as uh, these blue spheres. So these blue spheres are positive charges. They respond to the incoming action potential by moving and opening the channel. The opening of the channel generates a new action potential. So that's the basic principle. Now, there's a problem in studying such a system crystallographically. For the channel to be open, you have to depolarize the membrane. In other words, if the voltage across the membrane... I'm sorry, in order for the channel to be closed, the membrane has to be polarized. If the voltage across the membrane is zero, then you get an open channel. Now, when you grow a crystal in order to study the structure like Rod McKinnon does. When you grow a crystal, you can't maintain a voltage across each individual molecule in a crystal. Um, That's impossible. And so what happens when you crystallize the protein is that the voltage across the channel is zero, and so the channel is actually open. And so those are the crystal structures that we have. However, in order to get the structure to be closed, you would have to have positive inside, negative outside, which you can't maintain in a crystal. So people have done lots and lots of sophisticated experiments, and I don't mean to belittle them at all. Um, they've stopped short, however, of showing us this opening and closing process. But nevertheless, from the work of many electrophysiologists and the structures of Rod McKinnon and another, we have an idea that something like this will happen. This is when the channel is open, and this is when the channel is closed. And uh, so we'd like to understand how this system actually works. And so what David Shaw's group reported uh, in 2012 is that they put a potassium channel in a lipid bilayer, again, in the computer. And in the computer, they flipped the voltage across the membrane in the computer. And then they just ran the molecular dynamics simulations that I've been telling you about. And what was remarkable in this calculation to me is, lo and behold, in response to the appropriate voltage chain, the channel, if it's open, it closes. And I'd like to uh, show you a couple of pictures from their simulations. So here is the structure at the beginning. This is an open potassium channel. And uh, then as they go... So in this open potassium channel, you have positive inside and negative outside. And... uh, No, I think it's the other way around. Uh, The the arrow is pointing. uh, No, that's correct. This is the open potassium channel with positive inside the cell, negative outside the cell. Easy in my mind to flip the sign of these since I'm not an electrophysiologist. But that's the voltage, the channel is open. Then in the computer at this point, they flip the voltage so it's positive outside, negative inside. So here's the main channel. This y-axis is a measure of how open the channel is. It's the number of water molecules that are accommodated in the mouth of the channel. So it's high when the channel is open. The computer simulation responds to the uh, flipping of the voltage by almost immediately closing the channel so that the number of water molecules accommodated at the mouth drop. Then it's in a closed state and... The voltage sensors, the details of this are a little hard to see, but here's the voltage sensor with all these positively charged residues. Here's at the beginning, here's at the end, and you can see just by looking at the structure that... So again, this is a great uh, feat of computer simulations at the very edge, outer edge, of where technology can take us today. But what it does is reassure us that these calculations that our Nobel laureates did on a wish and a prayer so many years ago are actually on the right track to telling us about biology. I'd like to end in a few minutes by showing you one example from my lab using these computers that are a thousand times slower. And this calculation I shouldn't say they're a thousand times slower. They're certainly slower than Anton's that were done 10 years ago using NERSC computers. In this case, we were studying the process of uh, DNA replication. Without going into details, here's the parental DNA, and there's a machine called the replisome, shown here, which is replicating uh, the two strands of DNA, generating two daughter double helical strands. In order to achieve very high speed... What happens is that the actual enzymes that add nucleotides, shown here in red and here in red, two of them, are attached to circular proteins called sliding clamps, shown here in green. And these circular proteins allow the replisome to stay attached to DNA while moving at a remarkable speed. This thing adds 1,000 nucleotides per second, while making only one error in 10 million nucleotide additions. This is a a, a pretty mind-bending statistic in terms of how accurate the system is. So we've been studying for some time the speed of, of this polymerase in terms of the structural features that enable the speed, and we focused our attention on this circular protein called the sliding clamp. And this is conserved in all walks of life. Here is the bacterial sliding clamp. Done in our structure, determined in our lab by X ray crystallography. Here's the eukaryotic one, such as in humans. Now, because these are circular proteins, and because DNA replication occurs in short bursts, they actually have to be loaded onto DNA. You see, a circular protein like a curtain ring wouldn't load onto DNA. So there's an ATP driven machine called a clamp loader that opens uh, the circular clamp and puts it onto DNA. So here's an imagination, the uh, imaginative movie. This is not molecular dynamics, so, so don't let me get carried away. This is just a completely fictional movie of uh, the replication fork that I'm gonna show you right now, which shows a machine called the clamp loader opening these clamps and putting it on DNA. Complete fiction, but of course, I think within five years, um, if things go the way they are, this process will actually be simulated. So here's the clamp loader, opens the clamp, puts it on. Okay, let me play this again. without. So let me use the green spot for a minute just to show you where to look. This here is where the clamp loader is going to open a clamp and put it on DNA. So let's go back and start the video again. So the clamp loader is the thing in the center. It opens a clamp in blue, puts the clamp on DNA, a polymerase is attached to it, and then high-speed replication continues. And so this repeatedly cycles as um, the the reposome is shown here, uh, stationary in the DNA, extruding out. So we've been working on the mechanism of this uh, clamp loader complex, which uses ATP energy to open the clamp, Um, and I don't want to take you through the details uh, which have been the focus of our study, but I just want to ask a simple question. If we're going to use energy to open the clamp, does the clamp loader bind to a closed clamp and then exert torque to open the clamp, or is the clamp just intrinsically able to open and close on its own, and does the clamp loader just trap the open state of the clamp uh, when, when it uh, opens up? And so the way we did this computer simulation is to start with the structure of the closed clamp, and if it were to open spontaneously, I'm pretty sure that will be once a microsecond or once a millisecond way beyond... The time scale of our computer simulations. So, we did a little trick in order to access these motions on a time scale we could simulate, which is that we simply removed one of the uh, three units that make up the clamp. And then we asked in a computer, what would the dynamics of the remaining clamp look like? And then Uh, Given instantaneous fluctuating structures uh, simulated uh, of of this two-thirds of a clamp, uh, we can piece together by symmetry what uh, a a, a transiently opening clamp may look like. So this was done in the normal way. We put it in a box of waters and simulate um, for an embarrassingly short time, 10 nanoseconds. But something quite wonderful happens in that 10 nanoseconds, which shows us that the system is actually under strain. So as soon as we release the constraint of closure, the strain in the system relaxes. And uh, the movie I'm going to show you actually puts back the third one by symmetry because there's a symmetry going from here to here and we we continue the symmetry to guess where the third one would be. And so what you can see here is a spontaneous opening as strain in the rest of the system uh, relaxes. Now, if you compare this to a crystal structure of the clamp loader, bound to a closed clamp, which we had determined uh, uh, by X-ray crystallography, you can see how the computer simulation shows an opening of the clamp loader so that it rises up to meet this green protein structure here. More recently, we actually, uh, through a lot of um, very difficult work, Brian Kelch in the lab determined a crystal structure of a clamp loader fully loaded with ATP, bound to DNA, and an open clamp. So this red structure here is the computer simulation from molecular dynamics. What I'm now going to show you is a crystal structure in which the clamp loader is present, DNA is present, and there's a crystal structure of an open clamp captured in the crystal. And what you can see is that the blue is the computer simulation. So here's DNA, here's part of the clamp loader, and in red is the crystal structure. And and again, I think to me, this is very exciting. We've got in the computer simulation the understanding that on a very short time scale, the relaxation of internal strain in the clamp actually yields a structure which is very similar to what we've captured in the crystal. Of course, the advantage of the simulation is that it gives you every instantaneous structure that you can analyze and perhaps gain more insight into the process. So those were some things that I inserted into Martin Karplis's Nobel Prize lecture, but I'll end with his last slide and just quote him. So he says, what does he asks what does the future hold?" So he wishes for experimentalists to use simulations as a tool like any other. Now this is what he wished when I was a graduate student, and experimentalists have been slow over the years perhaps except for some brave souls, to use simulations as they would use any experimental tool. And I would argue that the advances in high-speed computation, some of which I've uh, shown you uh, the results of in terms of molecular dynamic simulations of proteins, ought to encourage people to use uh, simulations as a tool. And Martin Karpelis wishes for the application of simulations to ever more complex systems. And here I think he was getting a little carried away. Martin, if you're watching this, I was shocked that you said viruses, okay, good. Ribosomes, that's fine. Cells a little ambitious. And then he says the brain. So I'll leave you with this. But he then says always with cautionary realization that simulations like experiments, have their limitations and inherent errors. Thank you very much. To <laughs> you take questions? Is there time for questions? Or, yes, there, yeah? Yeah,
1: there's time for questions, and I'll uh, hand you the microphone because we are uh, streaming and, and are recording this. So when the clamp is closed, there's, is there some sort of attraction between those six units that keeps it closed, yes, even yes. under strain? And what the clamp loader does, it sort of pushes it down, so it
0: Yeah, probably clicks. just tickles it in one spot, and then it opens up. That's the idea. And I would say that that idea comes from the computer simulations. If we had only got the crystal structure of the end state, we wouldn't, wouldn't sort of know. Uh, but if you believe the force field, it says that there's a strain in the system that can be easily released. Hi there. Uh, David Skinner from NERSC. I liked your uh, you know, presentation going through uh, structure, binding, and then the channel dynamics uh, comparing experimental and simulation techniques. I don't know if the clamp loader is too big to serve as sort of a next step validation of computational techniques, but what would you identify as sort of the next largest system that would be useful to do that kind of rigorous comparison with? I think the uh, DNA replication system is certainly uh, a a great one. Uh, It's much more complex than just a um, a simple uh, voltage-gated channel in a membrane. Much bigger in terms of the component proteins. But the way I would actually answer your question is we are seeing a revolution now. Truly, in the experimental analysis of supramolecular assemblies. A lot of it happening here. With tomographic reconstructions, cryo-electron microscopy, and other structural tools, we're getting an unprecedented view. And I may be speaking as if, uh, you know, I'm getting a little carried away with myself, but this is not my work. And we are now beginning to see processes occurring in the cell. And so I think to come up with systems to simulate the limitation is not in choosing the system the limitation is knowing you know, how best to use the simulation so that they stay wedded to reality um,
1: Doug Jacobson, nurse. Um in your lab how, how far do you think the simulations take you and how far do the, the experiments take you and
0: do you find that they inform each other? Well, in my lab, uh, we constantly do simulations. A lot of it we don't publish. Uh, The way I describe it is that when you study the structure of a biological macromolecular complex, it doesn't come with an instruction manual. Now, having recently bought some complicated uh, electronics, uh, perhaps I should say that the instruction manuals we're provided with when we make such a purchase are not that much more useful than not having a manual. But the truth remains that we don't have a manual. So um, we have these very complicated molecular systems that emerge from experimental analysis, which is 99% of our effort is getting those images and doing the experiments that lead to some measurements around them. Um, But often we have very simple questions, uh, which simulations let us probe. Uh, my lab is not principally a computer simulation lab, so we are, you know, sort of at it and uh, run uh, simulations that the likes of David Shaw would, uh, would laugh at. So what we've done is we've done a lot of work with David Shaw to help us answer. And I have chose not to talk about the work we've done with David Shaw, but we've done a number of things with him. So
1: uh one more question was: um, As you look to the future, these are very, very uh, ambitious goals. These are not my goals. These are when, Martin Carpellos goals. goals. Yes. Yes. So, do you do you have a sense for um, is the need to run uh, bigger and bigger simulations with more and more atoms, or would you rather run for long periods of time so that you?
0: Oh, you're asking. To... So, you know, you're asking a question which is very interesting. I don't know the answer to it, but there are two schools of thought here. Uh, So I'm asked, would you like to run a longer and longer simulation, or would you like to run many short simulations? And uh, Vijay Pandey, for example, at Stanford, would argue that it's just as uh, uh, effective to run many short simulations. It has to do with the nature of the energy landscape. So ultimately, it comes down to an assertion about the energy landscape. Now, if you want to... Yell fire, and then simulate how people will exit the room. Because there's only one door that I can see, and there are lots of us. Most of the time will be spent... Finding the door that exits the room, and so you could run one long simulation with uh, and then figure out how people exit the room, or you could run lots of short simulations and in a statistical sense, the short simulations uh, would would sort of get you the idea that whoever finds the door will leave the room uh, that 's an assertion that uh, searching exhaustively uh, uh, searching exhaustively by running many short trajectories is uh, as good as a single long trajectory. And David Chandler, whose picture I showed you earlier, has developed pathway uh, tools for analyzing the statistics of crossing um, mm-hmm. barriers such as imposed by the door. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think there's two schools of thought here. Okay. Any
1: other
0: Are there any effects in, in your basic equations, classical molecular... I, I beg your pardon? Are there any effects in the classical molecular dynamics simulations that you feel are not adequately captured yes. by the equations? Yes. The, the, what, well, where would so First go? of all, there, there are many, but people have identified the next most important thing to fix. And it, my understanding is it will cost a factor of 10 uh, to fix that. And that is very simply... this affects us a lot because we study highly charged species such as ATP, which is charge polarization. So the way, if you have um, any uh, group of atoms, the charges assigned to those atoms stay fixed during the simulation. But in fact, if you have a cluster of atoms and and a charged species approaches them, the charges will reorganize which is very obvious uh, that this, it is very obvious that this must happen and it's neglected. And the way we know this is a problem is that if we go in and look in this classical simulation at what happens around ATP, the most simple of uh, you know, molecules we could study, let alone DNA, we will see obvious errors in the response of the system to highly charged species. And so people have already come up with um, methods to fix this. It's by having charges that are actually flexible and attached to the atoms so that they can reorganize. What I understand, again, not being a computational specialist, is a factor 10. So um, you know, do you want a millisecond with this coarse uh, force field or 100 microseconds with the better force field? And that's shaking itself out now. Other questions? So you mentioned that you were using custom hardware to make these calculations, and I think the trend is somewhat a little bit against the trend in many other fields, such as lattice gauge theory and cosmological computations, where people have gone away from custom hardware and towards off-the-shelf uh, commodity, so-called commodity hardware. What
1: so, is
0: so, uh, yeah. yeah? So what Let is special Let me just respond your, by your, saying okay. that I don't use custom hardware. Okay. We buy our hardware from where do we buy our hardware from? Silicon. Mechanics. It's from Silicon Mechanics, uh, located somewhere here. This is David Shaw who's doing this. By doing this, he has proven some really important points, such as the protein folding, the drug finding its binding site. Um, that you know, and the voltage channel opening, uh, which had never been demonstrated before to the degree of uh, definitiveness that his calculations uh, have shown, but now uh, that we're reassured about the, I am reassured about the basic stability of the force field, we can go back and run hundred short simulations on uh, hardware bought from Silicon Mechanics or computer time from NERSC or the NSF centers and see whether the sampling that we then get, which is different because stochastic, uh, you know, gives us the same information. This is not an argument for building uh, custom hardware, certainly not for me.
1: Okay, well let's thank Professor Kubra for a wonderful lecture.